Baseball fandom in Chicago has always been cyclical, but for the first 20 years of the 20th century, the White Sox dominated at the box office and in the local press. After the Black Sox scandal, attendance and fan interest plummeted on both sides of town. But Chicago's population continued to balloon post-World War I, growing 25% during the 1920s. All wasn't lost for the White Sox. Even as many of their established fans began tuning them out, a brand new populace was there for the wooing. But it was the Cubs with their brash young group of sluggers who were suddenly captivating the city. All the White Sox could do was try to keep up. I'm Terry Bonadonna, and today on Chicago's Civil War, we'll relive one of the most dramatic summers in Cubs history, and then one of the most heartbreaking Octobers. Cubs historian Ed Hartig will rejoin us to talk about some of the great Cubs teams. And as more and more fans are showing up to glimpse Chicago's baseball's rivalry up close, can the games match the intensity? Let's find out. Before the 1926 campaign, the Cubs weathered much criticism and hired minor league lifer Joe McCarthy as manager. The gambit paid off in spades as the team improved its win total in each of McCarthy's first four seasons. Down on the south side, the White Sox were unwilling to follow the Cubs' model. After winning the 26 City Series in seven games, Eddie Collins was fired as manager of the Sox. Collins had been successful with two straight winning seasons, but Charles Comiskey preferred a player-manager, and he felt that age and injuries were starting to catch up with Collins. The move was handled poorly, as Comiskey notified the press before telling his skipper. Collins found out when contacted by reporters looking for a quote. He claimed not to be upset, and returned to Philadelphia to close out his career with the A's. After retiring, Collins became the longtime general manager of the Boston Red Sox, for whom he signed Ted Williams, among others. The White Sox' new manager was Ray Schalk, and his inaugural season in charge was a trying one. The trouble started on March 8th when White Sox supporter Pat Prunty returned to his spring training hotel room and found star outfielder Johnny Mostel lying on the bathroom floor covered in blood. He had used a razor blade and pocket knife to cut himself 13 times on the wrists, legs, chest, and neck in an attempted suicide. An ambulance was called and several White Sox, including new manager Ray Schalk, administered first aid, saving Mostel's life. His prognosis was not initially positive. A subheading in the next morning's Montreal Gazette contained the simple message, Expected to die. Mostel miraculously pulled through, though. Three weeks later, he was released from the hospital, but he sat out all but the last two weeks of the season, and his career was never the same. Mostel had finished second in the previous year's MVP vote and was a career 307 hitter, but he played just one more full season. He did, however, rejoin the White Sox years later as a scout, a position he held until retiring at the age of 72. Even without their star center fielder, the White Sox were hot out of the gate in 1927. On June 6th, they boasted a 31-17 record before falling apart completely. They finished 70-83 and and were just the second team ever to sit both 14 games over and 14 games under 500 in the same season. After so rough a second half, the Cubs spared them the ignominy of having to take the field again. On September 20th, the Cubs announced that there would be no challenge for a City Series in 1927. Like the Sox, the Cubs had gotten off to a hot start, but theirs lasted all the way into August. With 44 games to play, they had a six-game lead on the rest of the National League. Then they collapsed, winning just four of their next 20 games. They finished the season in fourth place, eight and a half behind the pennant-winning Pirates. 
the mood was so dour on the north side that Bill Veck announced his intention to forego the annual city series. The season of 1927 contains so many splendid possibilities that any series other than the World Series would be an ill-fitting climax. That was okay with the White Sox, or at least their boss. Charles Comiskey responded simply, The White Sox are satisfied that the City Series will not be played this year. As far as we are concerned, nothing is to be gained by the Sox defeating the Cubs in another City Series. Reporters were not shy about printing what they felt was the true reason there would be no October action in Chicago. The White Sox had been openly cheering for every Cubs loss in September, hoping for the collapse so they would get a chance at an extra paycheck in the City Series. The thin-skinned Cubs didn't want to give them the satisfaction. There's no question that there was a demand for the series. The Chicago Tribune took to the streets to get the fans' opinion, and they were universally opposed to the Cubs' decision, including a Miss Joanna Bauman, who claimed that she didn't go to games, but, I enjoy reading about them, and I like to know that the Chicago teams are winning, both the Sox and the Cubs. I believe there is more interest in the city series than in any of the other games. Those sentiments were echoed by Mr. Jack Jorgen, who stated, There should be a series between the Sox and Cubs every year. It is a part of our city festivities. Mr. Robert Anderson added, When the two home teams play together at the end of the season, there has created a goodwill interest that is absent when our Chicago teams are playing outsiders. There is something that is worth more than the mere money that is in it for the players. Mr. Anderson may have been right, but there was also plenty of money on the table that the Cubs were passing up. Their exciting young team that featured one of the top offenses in baseball had stirred up a new interest on the north side of the city. The ballpark that had now been renamed Wrigley Field attracted 1.1 million paying customers in the summer of 1927, making the Cubs the first non-Yankee team ever to crack the 1 million mark. This new era of Cubs excitement carried over to 1928 when they brought in over a million fans for the second straight year. There were a lot of reasons for all the Cubs' optimism, not the least of which was the play on the field. In 28, they added future Hall of Famer Kaikai Kyler to the already loaded outfield in a trade with the Pirates, and rookie sensation Pat Malone to the pitching staff. This time, the Cubs did not collapse down the stretch, but they did fall just short of the pennant, finishing with 91 wins four behind the St. Louis Cardinals. Another reason for the Cubs' unprecedented success at the ticket office was their constant promotion of the team through daily radio broadcasts. The idea was initially hatched by Judith Waller, the station manager at WMAQ. Waller knew nothing about radio when she took the job in 1922. Nobody really did, it was a brand new medium. Waller saw a large swath of time in the middle of the afternoon that had to be filled by something, and she threw whatever she could think of at it. She brought on actors, singers, and newspaper editors for entertainment and education. Then she went to William Wrigley with a brand new suggestion. She wanted to carry every Cubs home game on the air in 1925. The World Series had been broadcast on radio since 1921, but no one had tried to put a whole season on the air before. Wrigley and Vec decided to let Waller give it a try. She assigned sports writer Hal Totten to call the action, and he became a mainstay at Wrigley Field for years. Ditto WGN's Quinn Ryan, who soon followed with daily coverage. There were no broadcasting exclusivity deals at the time, and the Cubs thought the more coverage they could get, the better. By 1929, nearly every radio station in the city was broadcasting at least a partial schedule. Many baseball executives were deathly opposed to the radio, including Ban Johnson, who lived up to his name and banned American League teams from broadcasting. They felt that fans would no longer show up at the park if they could hear the action for free. William Veck felt very strongly that those execs were wrong. A radio broadcast was just an hour and a half long commercial for the team. 
Charles Comiskey was a supporter of the new broadcast medium as well, and in 1927, as soon as the ban was lifted, he made the White Sox the first American League team with broadcasts. Vec, Comiskey, and company were proven right as the Cubs destroyed attendance records left and right in the late 20s. They even were able to bring in a whole new fan base. Up to now, baseball was marketed almost exclusively to men. Radio helped to change that. In the 1920s, most men worked during the day while their wives stayed home with a radio to keep them company. With ballgames broadcasting nearly every afternoon, women in Chicago became avid followers of the local teams. The Cubs took advantage of this with their Friday Ladies' Days, in which all women entered for free. This wasn't a new concept, but never before had any team promoted their Ladies' Days so fervently. Wrigley Field became a madhouse every Friday afternoon, and throughout the 1920s, the Cubs welcomed more female fans through the turnstiles than some National League teams had total. The Cubs weren't attracting women only to the stands, but to the front office. In 1926, they made Margaret Donahue their corporate secretary, the first woman to ever be a major league executive. She was a hugely influential member of the office and remained with the team until 1958, when she retired as vice president of the organization. There was no question that the late 20s was an exciting time to be a Cubs fan, but throughout 1928, they continued to take grief for ducking the White Sox the previous year. So caving to the pressure, William Veck offered his challenge on September 26th. It's a good thing he did because the atmosphere around the city may have been more electric than for any other city series. The Cubs were clearly the better team, but that had never stopped the White Sox before, so predictions were mixed as the series opened at Comiskey Park on October 3rd. The pitching matchup was a study of contrasts, with 15-year veteran spitballer Red Faber opposing rookie flamethrower Pat Malone. Nearly 26,000 fans showed up on a Wednesday to take it in, but the duel did not live up to its billing. The Cubs knocked Faber out with three runs in the first inning, and Malone went the distance, allowing five hits in a 3-0 final. During the game, the Chicago Tribune reported that they received 12,000 phone calls asking for a score update compared to just 3,000 asking about the World Series. Another big crowd came out to take in a more thrilling second game. Down 2-1 to one with two outs in the ninth inning, the Cubs sent Riggs Stevenson up. Stevenson blooped a double into right field and scored on an error, tying it at two. White Sox pitcher Tommy Thomas remained in the game as it spiraled into the 14th inning. Then, with Stevenson standing on second base, Charlie Grimm was intentionally walked, and Gabby Hartnett followed with a two-run triple, the game-winning hit. Tommy Thomas had thrown 14 innings and struck out 13 Cubs, but he took the loss as the Cubs went up in the series 2-0. Game 3 was another classic, this one for different reasons. The pitching matchup was Ted Lyons against Charlie Root, who would go on to be the winningest pitchers in their respective franchise histories. On this day, though, they were both out by the third inning. In what the Tribune described as a baseball comedy, the White Sox outpaced the Cubs 13-11. There were 33 total hits, 10 walks, and 3 errors in the game. The highlight may have been that day's winning pitcher. 23-year-old rookie Ed Walsh Jr. pitched 4 and 2 thirds innings of relief for the win, 16 years after his father's legendary City Series performance. The younger Walsh had an unspectacular four-year career with the White Sox, but this must have been a special moment for him, with his father watching from the dugout, still on the White Sox coaching staff. The Cubs won Game 4, putting them a game away from a series clinch. Game 5 was played on Sunday at Wrigley Field, and a record crowd of almost 45,000 showed up for the potential finale. They let out a huge roar as Riggs Stevenson made a great running catch on the first at-bat of the game, and then not another one the rest of the game. 
Tommy Thomas was magnificent, throwing a complete game. Only once did the Cubs put a runner in scoring position. The White Sox scored twice in the first inning when a fly ball dropped between Stevenson and Hack Wilson. That was all they needed to take Game 5. The Sox easily won the sixth game to force a deciding seventh contest at Comiskey Park, but it was a letdown for the home team. With a battered pitching staff, the White Sox urged Tommy Thomas to go to the mound on one day's rest, but Thomas decided he couldn't go. Instead, they turned to George Conley, who hadn't started a game since June. The Cubs scored six runs in the first inning and trampled the Sox for a 13-2 win. The last two games lacked in excitement, but the series as a whole was thrilling. A record 175,000-plus spectators came out for the seven games, and for the second time in their last three chances, the Cubs were city champions. As it turns out, they were just getting started. At the end of 1928, the Cubs were on the verge of dominating the National League. That November, they made the move that would put them over the top. They traded five players and $200,000 for the man they had been coveting for years, Rogers Hornsby. Hornsby was the best hitter in the National League, there was no question about that. He was a difficult man to get along with off the field, though. The Cubs were about to be his fourth team in four years. Let's welcome Cubs historian Ed Hardig. He'll set up the Hornsby era in Chicago. Bill Vex Sr. did, you know, he did most of the on-field stuff. But, you know, William really pushed Vec to make that deal. Vec thought the Cubs were overpaying for him. In the short term, Wrigley's move looked brilliant. Hornsby hit 380 and was named the league's MVP. He joined a lineup that already included future Hall of Famers Hack Wilson and Kai Kai Kyler, along with stars like Charlie Grimm, Riggs Stevenson, and Woody English. By the middle of August, they were already 10 games ahead of the pack, and that number didn't decrease over the final month and a half. Charlie Root and Pat Malone made the pitching almost as effective as the hitting. The only thing missing from this squad was Gabby Hartnett. The superstar catcher hurt his arm in the spring and was limited to 22 at-bats all year. Even without him, the Cubs bashed their way through the league for 98 wins, their most since 1910. The city embraced this group like none ever had before. The Cubs attracted more than 1.4 million fans, a number that had never been matched by even Babe Ruth's Yankees. The record stood all the way until the attendance boom that followed World War II. Hack Wilson was the hard-drinking, rough-and-ready center fielder, who was just as likely to find himself in trouble at a speakeasy with his running partner Pat Malone as he was to wow the crowd with tape measure home runs on a Wrigley Field afternoon. He was the perfect emblem of the Cubs during the Roaring Twenties. There's a story about Wilson that his manager Joe McCarthy tried to get him to stop drinking. So he showed Hack two glasses, one filled with water and the other with whiskey. He dropped a worm into each glass. The worm in the water was unfazed while the one in the whiskey died. Now what does that tell you, McCarthy asked his slugger, to which Wilson responded, if I drink whiskey, I won't get worms. Whatever Wilson was drinking didn't seem to halt his production any. In 29, he hit 345 with 159 RBIs. The next year, he set an NL record with 56 home runs and 191 RBIs, a record still unsurpassed. The Cubs met the A's in the World Series and the city of Chicago was on fire. Combined, more than 100,000 fans attended the first two games at Wrigley Field, but the home team lost them both. They appeared to be right back in the series when they took Game 3 in Philadelphia, and they led 8 to nothing in the seventh inning of Game 4. But that's when the Cubs became... the Cubs. Al Simmons let off the bottom of the seventh with a home run, then four straight batters reached on singles, one of them an easy pop-up that Hack Wilson lost in the sun. After an out was finally recorded, another single. 
Then, with two on, Mule Haas hit a fly ball deep to center field. Wilson drifted back on it, squinting into the sun. He stopped and reached his hand up, but the ball was over his head. He had lost another one in the sun. Haas rounded all the bases for an inside-the-park home run, and the score was somehow 8-7. to seven. By then, there was no stopping the inevitable. The Cubs used four pitchers in the inning, but seemingly no one could record an out. When the dust had cleared, the A's were up 10 to 8. They won the game and finished off the series the next day. Two weeks later, the stock market crashed. So depression wasn't exclusive to Cubs fans. For as bad as the end of the season was for the Cubs, the White Sox had been miserable all year. They set a franchise record with 93 losses, and the only member of the team that seemed to get any press was their brash young first baseman, Art Shires. Shires was a cocky 22-year-old from Texas, and his teammates disliked him enough that he was only voted a half share for the 1928 City Series, even though he had batted 341 in 33 regular season games and had at least one hit in every City Series game. Ultimately, Commissioner Landis had to step in to persuade them to give him a full share. Shires wrote poetry about himself, referred to himself as Art the Great, and once in May, he got into a fistfight with his 42-year-old manager, Lena Blackburn. Blackburn knocked him out, and when he regained consciousness, suspended him for three weeks. Still, Shires fancied himself a fighter, so after the 29 season, he challenged his crosstown rival Hack Wilson to a boxing match. Wilson agreed, and the match was set for Chicago Stadium in January. Hack will lose sight of my gloves just like he lost sight of the ball in the World Series, Shires taunted. The fact that Hack belongs in the National League, which is really just a minor league, doesn't prod my major league pride. The worst thing that I have against Sonny Boy is that he's an outfielder, and outfielders are for the most part a worthless lot. The derisive nickname Sonny Boy was starting to catch on on the south side. Ultimately, Bill Veck advised Wilson to drop out of the match, and after Shires was clobbered in a separate fight by Chicago Bear George Trafton, Wilson figured it wasn't worth his time anyway. Shires lasted one more season in Chicago before the White Sox got tired of him and shipped him off to Washington. He lasted only one more year in the major leagues. The 1930 Cubs were an offensive sight to behold, and they were beheld. They fell just a few thousand fans short of the record they had set the previous year. Hack Wilson seemed to rewrite the record book. Rig Stevenson and Kai Kai Kyler joined him with batting averages above 350, and Gabby Hartner returned to the lineup full-time with 37 homers and 122 RBIs. Still, there was something off about the team. The cloud of the previous year's World Series hung over them all year. With a month to go, they had a stranglehold on the National League, but the Cardinals stormed back and overtook them. Behind 10 games in mid-August, St. Louis finished the year by going 30-6, and and entering the final weekend, the race was essentially over. That's when word leaked that Joe McCarthy would not be returning in 1931. The move had been a long time coming. William Wrigley reportedly stated the night of the A's 10-run comeback in 1929 that McCarthy would not get more than another year. The announcement of who would replace the manager, though, indicated that the switch may have been in the works longer than that. At just 34 years of age, Rogers Hornsby had already managed three other teams and won a World Series. Since the day he was traded to the Cubs, his promotion seemed inevitable. Here's Ed Hardig with more. Not only did Wrigley like Hornsby as a player, amazingly, Wrigley liked talking with Hornsby. Now, Hornsby was sort of a curmudgeon at times and whatever else, and Hornsby got Wrigley's ear. 
McCarthy, you know, kept looking over his shoulder because yeah, he he heard Hornsby talking. He knew Hornsby was constantly with Wrigley. So McCarthy wasn't necessarily surprised. McCarthy was supposed to stick around until the end of the City Series, but once the news leaked, he took off with four games to go. He ended up in New York, where he won eight pennants and seven world titles in 16 years with the Yankees. Hornsby didn't have quite as much success in Chicago, but he did win his last four games of 1930. Since they had lost in 1928, the White Sox issued the series challenge, and it began on the south side on October 1st. All the pre-series dope favored the Cubs, as the White Sox finished with 90-plus losses for the second straight season. The Cubs, though, had been gearing up for their second straight pennant all year, and just saw their manager get fired. There was always the chance that they wouldn't quite be up to the annual crosstown battle. Those fears were realized early in the series, although it didn't hurt that Ted Lyons pitched the opener for the Sox. Lyons had won 22 games during the year, more than a third of his team's victories, and 12 more than his closest teammate. It was the third and final time that Lyons would win 20 in a season. His complete game victory gave the Sox a 1-0 series lead. It looked like they were ready to take a commanding 2-0 advantage, holding the mighty Cub Bats in check into the eighth inning of Game 2. That's when Kai Kai Kyler, who had been 0-7 in the series, whacked a three-run homer to give the National Leaguers a 4-2 win. From there, the Cubs woke up. After failing to collect a hit in the first two games, Hack Wilson, who had amazed fans all year, got back to it. He went 8-for-14 over the final four games with seven RBIs and eight runs scored. The crowd responded as well. The series averaged over 27,000 fans per game, a record for the City Series. That number included a whopping 45,000-person crowd for Game 5 at Wrigley Field. On the same day in St. Louis, the World Series game between the Cardinals and A's drew only 38,000. The Cubs took the series from the Sox in six games. To go along with their 1928 triumph, it was the first time they had ever beaten the White Sox two in a row. Despite the turmoil in the managerial ranks, this was something of a renaissance for Cubs baseball. My wife always tells me I was born in the wrong era because the 30s, I mean, it's just a who's who of Cubs. You know, you, you, gotta, you, get, you, gotta, you have a holdover like Gabby Hartnett. Uh, you had Stan Hack come along. Phil Cavaretta, a, a local boy, you know, coming along. Bill Lee, Larry French, Claude Passo, Charlie Root, you know, all-time winningest pitcher in franchise history. Charlie Grimm, it's just, it's a who's who of Cubs. 1931 was their worst year during the decade, but they still won 84 games. Tension between the skipper and his players may have played a part in their step back. Rogers Hornsby did not get along with Hack Wilson, and the two had a season-long rivalry that ended when Wilson was suspended for the last month of the season. He never played another game for the Cubs. Hornsby lasted another year as manager, but halfway through 1932, they had had enough and let him go. Very few tears were shed in the Cubs' clubhouse. Hornsby is let go as manager on August 2nd. And then I think August 9th, the Cubs had a Charlie Grimm day at the ballpark. I think it kind of tells you right there that when you give your new manager a special day because you've gotten rid of the old manager, that yeah, the old, the old manager just something didn't go over very well. During the Cubs' renaissance, the White Sox were a mess. Between 1929 and 1934, the Sox finished in last place twice and seventh of eight three times. They never finished higher than sixth. The best thing to happen to the team in the early 30s didn't become apparent until a few years later. Luke Appling was signed in September of 1930, but took a couple of seasons before he really got going. 
By the time he retired in 1950, after 20 years in Chicago, he was the team's all-time leader in hits, walks, doubles, RBIs, and runs scored. He is still arguably the best player in franchise history. Since neither team was in the pennant race in 1931, the trash talk started nice and early. Throughout the summer, fans threw verbal jabs at one another, with the White Sox fans accusing Cubs supporters of being fair-weathered and too hard on the team when they didn't perform well, and Cubs fans responded by pointing at the standings. Cubs ace Pat Malone got in on the sparring, saying, Give me a team of eight bloomer girls out of the old ladies' home, and with my arm I can lick that bunch of sandlotters. Bloomer girls were barnstorming all-girl baseball teams that played regularly until the mid-30s. The two teams gave the city an early preview of the city series with an exhibition for charity on September 9th. Almost 35,000 fans showed up to support people who had lost their jobs during the Great Depression. Among the rooters were gangster Al Capone and his son. Prior to the game, Sonny Capone asked for an autograph from his favorite player, Gabby Hartnett. Hartnett obliged, signing a ball for the 12-year-old, at which point a picture was taken that showed up in newspapers all over the country. Kennesaw Mountain Landis, shortly after, sent a telegram to Hartnett forbidding him from taking any more pictures with noted gangsters. Okay, Hartnett supposedly replied, but if you don't want me taking pictures with Capone, you tell him. The next month, Capone was sentenced to 11 years in prison for tax evasion. Charlie Root pitched and won the game for the Cubs, driving in all three runs himself in a 3-0 win. Three weeks later, the teams met for their annual best of seven. The series wasn't quite as well attended as the year before, but it did have its highlights. Game five at Comiskey Park attracted 41,000 fans. The series played out much tighter than expected. Including the 1906 World Series, the White Sox had won 11 series compared to the Cubs' six. But the North Siders had won the last two and appeared to be the far superior team again, even without Hack Wilson. Yet it was the White Sox who dominated Game 1, scoring seven runs in the sixth inning on their way to a 9-0 win. The Cubs came back by taking a nail-biter in Game 2. Vin Barton's RBI single in the bottom of the ninth gave them a 1-0 victory. Game 3 was nearly as tight. This time it was early scoring that held up. The Cubs played a 2 in the first inning and won 2-1. That gave them a 2-1 lead in the series, but Game 4 was the one the Southsiders had been waiting for. After Pat Malone's old ladies' home comment, he was pelted with lemons from Sox fans when he took the mound for his first start of the series. The White Sox players made Malone look foolish for his insults. In the previous year's City Series, Johnny Watwood had his skull broken when Malone hit him with a pitch. Watwood led off Game 4 against Malone and showed a total lack of fear hitting a double. It was that kind of game for the Cubs pitcher. He gave up 12 hits in 6 innings, and the Sox evened the series with a 4-3 triumph. The White Sox secured a blowout win in the next game, and they were one away from the city championship, but for the second time in the series, the Cubs relied on late-inning dramatics in Game 6. This time, Charlie Grimm played hero. His two-run double in the bottom of the ninth gave the home team a 3-2 win and forced a seventh game at Wrigley Field. This one was easy, though, for the White Sox. A 7-2 win gave them their first city title since 1926. The 1931 season had been a disappointment for the White Sox, but the City Series win was a nice way to go out, and perhaps an important one for Charles Comiskey. It was the last series he was ever a part of. On October 26th, the founder of the White Sox died at his lodge in Wisconsin. He was 72 years old.
Over the next several weeks, condolences streamed in from all over the country. The city of Chicago paused to mourn this legend of the game, undoubtedly the most important person in the city's baseball history. Comiskey's career in baseball had begun in 1876 when he signed a contract to play for a minor league team in Milwaukee for $50 a month. From there, he worked his way up to becoming the owner of the most valuable team in the major leagues. He was one of the principal founders of the American League, and with Ban Johnson having died seven months earlier, Comiskey had been the last man remaining from the early days of the AL. His legacy was not limited to Chicago or even the United States. Following the 1913 season, he and John McGraw brought their players on a world tour, introducing baseball to dozens of other countries and helping the game's popularity grow all over. Since 1920, the White Sox had scarcely been competitive, and that ate at Comiskey. When he died, he had not been actively running the club for several years, but he had given much of his money towards player signings, trying to bring a winner back to the south side of Chicago. Alas, it never happened in his life, and he never truly got over the results of 1919. Representatives of almost every team in baseball were present at Comiskey's funeral, including William Wrigley. Before the Cubs would play another game, Wrigley was dead as well. He passed away on January 26, 1932. Wrigley did not have nearly the history in baseball that Comiskey did, but his story is interesting as well. Let's hear about it from Ed Hardig. It's December 1915. Wrigley's on a train coming back from Ohio, and there's some people on the train are making fun of him. Ah, the Cubs are owned by a family from Ohio, not even owned by Chicagoans. And Wrigley's like, well, if I had my way, that's going to change. He wanted 100% ownership of Chicago people. So Wrigley's initial involvement was just, civic pride and uh, he started going to a few games and started doing this and you know what I kind of like this it's unfortunate he passed when he did because he he loved the Cubs it went from civic pride to this is something he, he enjoyed being around what could you do to make people ha- you know be, be more comfortable at games you know they, they expanded the ballpark they brought in bigger seats they pushed for games being on the radio The 1932 season began with the sons of the two esteemed owners calling the shots. Neither Lou Comiskey nor P.K. Wrigley had the passion for baseball that their fathers did, but the teams were both on pretty set tracks already. The Cubs continued to contend every year in the 1930s, while the White Sox were stuck in the bottom tier of the American League. That didn't mean that the Cubs dominated the local rivalry, though. There were plenty of good fights still ahead. Next week, one Cub gets shot, and that somehow leads to the most famous home run in the history of baseball. The White Sox torment the Cubs by bringing in old friends from the 29 World Series, and the two teams become a little more familiar with each other, establishing two city series each year, until one year, it all breaks down. That's next time on Chicago's Civil War. Hey, head on over to terrybonadonna.com slash city dash series in case you've missed anything from this podcast. And while you're there, think about leaving a few pennies for Immerman Angels, an organization that provides free personalized one-on-one cancer support for cancer fighters, survivors, and caregivers. Mm-hmm.